0: Welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we talk to global leaders in hospitality and learn what's happening now and what's next for tomorrow. I'm your host, Tarek Mallet, founder and CEO at Mobi, the digital partner of hospitality. In this episode, I chat with Clark McCowan, CEO of Wildwing, and we dive deep into the world of franchising. He takes us through Wildwing's continued expansion in Canada as well as their upcoming expansion into the US market. Clark discusses the strategic adaptions they've made to the brand to ensure a smooth entry into their neighboring country with their first location in Florida. On the topic of technology, Wildwing is adopting new practices to benefit both customers and staff. With new technology at the forefront, such as table ordering, Wildwing is leaning towards changing the traditional title of server to that of experience maker, a smart and strategic way to increase efficiency when it comes to ordering, whilst also maintaining the warm in-house experience customers have come to love. Clark, Wild Wings with 97 locations across Canada and 101 different flavours and two different types of Canadian wings. Founded in 1999, you took over ownership in 2015. To begin, I'd love to learn more about your background in hospitality and what led you to Wild Wings in 2015.
1: I quite diverse background. I started at Deloitte. So I'm a CPA and there I was trained to do banking and restructurings and turnarounds. I left there and I joined a small private equity firm. So that's kind of what got me into the business world. We acquired a bunch of businesses and I'd run them. One of the other ones I ran, we were in very different industries, smoke alarms, carbon dioxide alarms. We were number three in the world in that. I had factories in Mexico, China, the UK, and Canada. After I left that, then I went back into the corporate finance world and an accounting firm. I don't know if you've heard of them, BDO. They're one of the, I think they're number six or seven in the world. So for Canada, I built their M&A and due diligence practice for them while I basically was looking around for another acquisition. And that's where I came across Wildwing, which really fit, uh, you know fit exactly what I was doing. It was a really popular brand but it was struggling. It had a lot of underperforming stores. The owner of the business was you know, a phenomenal entrepreneur. He started it and grew it, something I wouldn't have the skill set to do. But by the time we met, he basically said he needed to turn it over to someone who would run it differently because it had reached a certain critical mass. And he really wasn't the right person to do that. So with the backing of a, uh, a financial sponsor, a US private equity fund, they own 20% of the business. I own the balance. We bought Wild Wing in 2015, March. And it's been a pretty exciting adventure since then. I knew nothing about the hospitality industry, that's for sure. But I know one thing is you hire really good people. And we've got a phenomenal team, very experienced in the restaurant industry. So they focus more on the operational side of it. And I focus more on the strategy and really the finance and budgeting and all that kind of stuff.
0: I can imagine the foundation that gave coming into a business like Wild Wings where they had parts of the formula were working really well and then bringing in those skill sets that you would have learned along sort of the the M&A process to put them into to play. What were some of those immediate changes that you made when you came into Wild Wing? And one of the things you've touched on is just how important that team is.
1: The starting point was hiring Todd, who's running our operations, and he basically, uh, redid all the supply agreements, all the menus. We took a very different look and approach to our franchisees. It was a very bad relationship between franchisor and franchisee when we took over. It was actually a pretty emotional process. When I went to the first franchise meeting, people were breaking down and crying because of how they felt before. And through that, we've really approached our franchisees as partners in the business, re-engage them in the process. They're the front line. They're involved in what we put on the menu. They're involved in our pricing. We constantly seek feedback with them and treat them as their partner. And as we explain, you know, sure, we may own the brand, but they're, you know, the brand is important for them in several ways. One, it is drives their own sales, you know, in the restaurant. But if they turn around and sell the business... The stronger the brand is, the more value they'll also get for their business too. And the most encouraging thing is we're, we're in the middle of opening 14 new locations. Most of these, I think 12 out of the 14, I believe, are existing franchisees. So when you get your, your current franchisees buying more locations, that's a phenomenal sign.
0: Absolutely. And look, it's one thing to go and franchise a business. It's another thing to make it successful. And you talk about on your website and it's known in the industry, you take a very entrepreneurial approach to your franchise model. You've got things like the Centre of Excellence that you've got located in King City, Ontario to help support those franchisees and the like. And I think our listeners would love to learn more about your sort of approach to franchising and some of the advice you could give to others on how to really foster that entrepreneurial approach but still whilst maintaining that brand consistency, you hear lots of stories around how franchisees almost go rogue and it feels like you've got an amazing culture that you've built there. How have you gone about that? Cause it's not easy. As
1: I said, it's trust, right? It's a two way relationship. The center of excellence though was an important comment because that was one of the first things that we actually did build. You could look at it as a model home. So we wanted to let franchisees existing and new franchisees, Say, this is the best practices that we could figure in, in how you build a restaurant when it's the kitchen, what the look is, the colors, the features. What we've done very different than a lot of the brands, a lot of the brands will turn around to you and they say, This is what your restaurant's to look like. We're going to build it for you. It's a standalone concept, all the color, everything in a dessert. And what we've done, which is different, is we say, Look, we'll help you through the construction process, but You're responsible for building it. Here's a bunch of contractors you could work for. We're not going to take a markup on the initial build process. And I think that's a bit of uh, the good starting point because they don't get a restaurant that would cost, let's say, $400,000 to build, and they have to pay $500,000 for the restaurant. So we're trying to find the most affordable way for them to get into it. The other thing that we do is show them a lot of flexibility because what keeps us common in our brand is our, our POS system, our menu, our branding, all our supplies and our products, but we allow them to have a lot of flexibility and we encourage them to do a retrofit versus a new buy. For example, a new buy, if you build it from scratch, is five, six hundred thousand dollars. And sometimes they can build a restaurant for two or three hundred thousand dollars using a retrofit. And I think that's that's a key point in how we start with the franchise relationship because They know we're not there to try to make money all the way through the whole process. We're trying to get them in with an affordable solution. Uh, How do you save uh, money on efficiencies in your restaurant? So if you're always looking from the perspective of a franchisee, that's how you build the relationship.
0: And you touched on that word trust, and that's clearly a huge part of it. 97 locations, another 14 open, or soon to open, creating that consistency across the brand while still providing that flexibility and freedom at that scale is fantastic. And, and
1: what I was saying too, and in the all the stores that we've opened, the other part of the process that we did is over the time, as leases expire and we don't like certain locations, we also work with franchisees to move to new locations. We have closed 28 locations since we started and we opened, it's 40 plus the 14. So it's been a real big transformation of the brand and not just doing the menu and everything. We've been turning sites over to get more profitable and larger locations in the system.
0: You've got a, a number of years of experience in franchising now, and it's clear that you're having great success in it. Where do you think brands go wrong when they franchise? I think that you have to get to that critical mass.
1: And when you've got two or three or four locations, it's extremely hard unless you have a very unique brand or you tag along with a LeBron James or someone like that to get that huge profile. You've got to be able to hit the critical mass and you know, 30, 40, 50 locations before you really are a brand because people have to see your path to success. And that's why maybe it makes more sense. If I was starting, I'd probably start with three, four or five corporate locations run those and you know prove to the community that yeah it's going to be a successful brand before you jump out to franchising some people seem to jump out to franchising right away way before they're ready it's also as a franchiser you don't make money in this business until you hit a critical mass you know you get some rebates on your food and you get some royalties but it's a small fraction of the gross sales of the network and if you think every staff that we hire it takes about four locations to pay for them. So if you start thinking up of that way, and that's not even including the rent and all your other overheads, marketing and legal costs and everything that you have to go through. So it's very, very hard to jump into franchising as a, a new brand. And then existing brands who tend to go wrong, it's, it's really where they they stop seeing their franchisees as partners and starting, and they're they're treating them as a revenue stream, and and that's where and we've had it in Canada, where we've had some some of the largest brands in major conflicts with their their franchisees who go rogue. And no matter what you do, you're always going to have some franchisees who you know are going to give you grief and challenges. But instead of ignoring them, you really got to try to confront them and figure out what their issues are. Unfortunately, sometimes they're just people who want to cause trouble, right? But most of the time, you find out what their concerns are and you address it. And you also take the approach that maybe it's just not them who are thinking that way.
0: Starting out with those corporate stores and then growing the franchise model circa 100 locations. Now, what are those inflection points along the journey that you think can catch people out when they're building that franchise model?
1: Meaning what makes you stand out?
0: more those inflection points. So you're, as you're growing a business, having 10 staff is very different from 30 staff, 50 culture becomes an issue. Some of your processes don't necessarily scale. Have you noticed any of those inflection points along the way as you've started to expand the stores, bring in more franchisees? How do you scale that model beyond 100 locations?
1: The biggest issue right now facing the industry is supply of products. We're, we're actually starting to open up in Florida now. We're in the process of expanding down to that market. And some people just Say, oh, it it, mustn't be that hard. You're just going down to open a restaurant. And no, that's not it. Because we're the, as a franchiser, we're the whole back end. So it's logistics, POS system, marketing, branding, legals. You have to get your disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff. It's an interesting experience for us because up in Canada, we have a ton of buying power. You call up the major suppliers. They know who we are. They want to win the account. The big challenge that we have in the US, because it's different suppliers, it's a different country. And our policy is that we like to buy our product mainly from the country that we're in. It's how you approach your suppliers is so different down there because you gotta say, yeah, we can become big. We've been big up here in Canada. And will you partner up with us? Because it's an investment for them to make in you, right? Because They're not going to be making the money, certainly, until four, five, six years out. The big challenge I'm having with wings right now, there's a a global shortage of wings. We buy Canadian wings from one of the biggest suppliers in Canada called Maple Leaf, and they grow the birds here and they process the birds here, whereas most of our competitors are buying from places like Brazil. And Brazil is going through a lot of COVID issues right now in manufacturing. But not only that, anything you put on a freight car now, it went from like three grand, four grand for the car to like ten or fifteen thousand dollars. And you can't even get the product unloaded at the ports. So I think the biggest challenge is how do you guarantee a supply chain so people can deliver a consistent, good quality product, which is also affordable? So the whole thing about franchising is purchasing power, your franchisees should Get product cheaper from you than they otherwise would get if they go buy it themselves is one part of our philosophy here. And the second part of it is you got to guarantee supply chain. The disruptions, we have some of our competitors. We do a big thing here called half price wings on Tuesday our competitors have all dropped that because of supply issues we're still running the half price tuesdays and obviously that's a big advantage for us because we're attracting new guests and new customers into our brand also by having the brand recognition we work with many different delivery apps uber skip doordash and so when consumers go on to the you know look for wings they know who wild wing is whereas if you're just a no-name wing place it's going to be hard for you to attract that attention. The brand is important. The supply network distribution is important. And just how you run your business is important.
0: And I suspect that's not going away anytime soon at your scale, it just becomes more prevalent, which is again, where that culture and that trust and having an amazing franchise network really comes into its own. You mentioned a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, that you were looking to open another additional 90 locations. Obviously we've had COVID in between there. Where do you see Wild Wings going in the next three to five years?
1: I remember when COVID hit, I was actually sitting in the Caribbean on my March break and and all of a sudden I got a call and I was told, that the whole network was just closed you sit there and you wonder okay oh my god what's gonna happen fortunately our product is very deliverable and you know our takeout is good you know when people do takeout they want pizza Chinese food and wings our government in Canada was extremely helpful with wage and rent subsidies And a lot of our restaurants are owned by owner managers. And as long as you were paying yourself a wage prior to COVID, you were able to benefit also from that. So you could pay yourself literally through the government. They helped us get through. I'm actually very surprised that we had two locations closed during the whole COVID period. And that was only because of, uh, you know, leases expiring and we didn't like the sites. As I said, there's 14 locations right now. We were hoping to open about four or five of those this year but it's construction issues that we're having again they have a labor shortage parts shortage and everything else so most of these are all going to be pushed into 2022 and we haven't even started the year so what are we going to sell probably another 10 locations so you know maybe we're going to have 20 something open up in 2022 and i figure we'll do you know 10 or 15 a year thereafter we've just moved into quebec We're very, very well received. It took a while to get there. Those who don't know Quebec, it's French language. We opened our first one six months ago and we now have another two in the process of opening. And we think we'll do about 40 in that market alone. And then our big plan is to go down south. Now in the US, we can't use a Wildwing brand because it's already has similar names down there. So we're actually going under a concept called wing country, which is exciting for us. It's not a country of the country of music. It's a place, a destination you go for your wings. And the fun thing we're having with that is from everything we've learned over the last five or six years, and we're studying everyone in the industry who are doing things right and who are doing things wrong, where we're able to build a new concept based on what we've learned. So that's an exciting thing for us.
0: That is hugely exciting and shouldn't be underestimated how exciting that is and congratulations because that clearly shows the strengths of the brand. Because I think the last statistic I heard was 35% of businesses in the hospitality industry are either or looking to be shuttered. But it sounds like you've got some pretty ambitious and exciting growth plans there. So again, congratulations. Look, 101 flavors, two types of Canadian wings. I understand there's some exciting changes coming. 15 years, I believe
1: it is. Uh, We're trying to figure out when the last change was made in the wings because we have a uh, a breaded wing, we have a a non-breaded wing, and then we have a boneless product you can't actually call it a wing up here in the u.s you call it boneless and we have the new southern fried spicy wing coming out it's taken us about eight months to develop this uh in partnership with uh with maple leaf when you do the scale of wings that you do with us you have to also get all the government approvals the government has to approve it being processed all the different labeling so it's taken a while it launches in about two weeks i i certainly feel it's my favorite wing and the difference is is All of our other wings are what you would call a saucing wings. You take 101 wing flavors and you match it on. This one is a new concept being a dipping wing. So you dip it in a cool ranch because it comes with a great spicy taste profile in it already. We're the largest wing-focused sports chain in Canada. We want to maintain that position. And the way to do it is to extend our offering of wings. So we're hoping it doesn't cannibalize our existing wing offering. We're hoping it's going to... You know, attract more guests coming in for their wing experience, their wild wing. In the U.S. on Super Bowl weekend, I don't know if you know the stat: 1.4 billion chicken wings are eaten on Super Bowl weekend. 1.4 billion. If you can imagine that, that's it's insane.
0: That is amazing. And I was going to ask what your favourite chicken wing was, but it's clear that Southern Fried Spicy Wing takes the prize there. You touch on the supply chain issues being pretty critical and fundamental to scaling. There's also the challenge in the market at the moment with just supply of labour. And I understand the bulk of your stores are located in the province of Ontario. And from January the 1st, the minimum wage is being raised to $15 an hour. How do you think this will affect the local hospitality industry and businesses like Wild Winds? There's
1: two things really going up in the wage. What they've done is the minimum wage going up, I think it's 50 cents or something like that, for just normal minimum wage. The server wage is the one that's gone up for 250. So that's people who serve alcohol and get tips. I understand the moving of the minimum wage just for normal workers like your, your kitchen help and stuff like that. But the server wage, you wonder if the government really understands the nature of the business because we've already heard feedback from guests saying, well, now if I'm paying $12.50, they're getting paid $15. Why am I going to tip them so much? It's going to have a negative impact on everything in Ontario because the cost is going to go up of, and they just announced today, so I think it's 4.5% inflation in Canada. So your wage is going up. But the problem is, is that your food costs, your grocery bills and everything else is going to go up too. And for the lower income Canadians, they'll actually probably end up worse off because of this, because they're trying to deal with inflation. And the servers are going to probably make less money now because they're going to get less tips. And obviously what we have to do as a restaurant, we're going through it right now, we have to increase our pricing. We calculated when you had the labor and the cost of food going up, it's around 5.8 percent is what the actual cost. We're going up. By, I believe it's around 5.5 percent. So, as in the restaurant industry, we're actually worse off now because there's just so much that the consumer can absorb. Like for example, is our wings were 16.75 for you know the wings with fries and sides and all that, and it's going to go up to 17.75 as a basic item. And at what point in time when you add a beer to that and everything else? Is the consumer going to stay away? And the other problem you have is a lot of the business now is delivery. And on top of delivery, you've got the 25 or 30% fee. Is the restaurant industry going to be getting priced out of the market? It's a problem. We think we'll do okay because our frozen to fryer concept means that you only need one person in the kitchen when it's quiet, you know, two, maybe three when you're busy. You get some of these brands that are more chef inspired type of menus. I have no idea how they're going to deal with it because it's not only the price go up, you can't get labor. So and you can't automate someone chopping lettuce and preparing a meal. So let's wait and see six months from now. There may be a lot less competitors out there. The thing that baffles me the most is why is there a shortage of labor? That's the one I can't figure out because pre-COVID, there was labor. Post-COVID, there's no labor. It doesn't make any sense to me.
0: I wonder if it was the uncertainty in the industry and you had the labor decided that, well, I need to go to an industry that's more certain. Do you think they'll start flowing back in? It feels like changes like this will potentially make it more challenging. It gets back
1: to the bigger issue is managing the immigration process effectively. And 60, 70% of our network now is uh, a lot of immigration from India. We have a program here where you invest half a million dollars and it leads to, you know, uh, you eventually getting citizenship in Canada. So that's worked extremely well for us and our network. And they're incredibly hardworking people. Their family work in the restaurant. So we've benefited from that. I know it's the scary part in the U.S. is I heard immigration is down like 50% or something. And don't quote me on those numbers. That's just kind of what my understanding is. And the immigration... Part of this is the only real solution for the labor shortage in the long run. And the good thing about Canada is it's an extremely attractive place for people to move to, you know, like Australia or New Zealand and all that. There's some places that people really want to go to, but they, our government has tended to focus on the science and the technologies and the medical field for immigration. They got to fill the gap with the the lower skilled worker because that's what we need
0: the The tipping one always fascinates me. You may recall back in two thousand and sixteen, Danny Mayer from Union Square. Hospitality out of New York pioneered the no tipping movement to really try and break down that tension between front of house making a large amount of tips and celebrating the success of an evening and then all the back of house sitting there sweating and not seeing any of that. It sort of petered out over the following years. There is talk that with some of these changes coming back in and post-COVID that there might be a resurgence of that no tipping movement and increased menu prices. Do you see that playing out?
1: I think if people understand more about the tipping, because you do something called the tip out where they share the tips with the kitchen. And I think there's a lot of education too, to the people who are front of house. You got to explain, look, you're successful in front of house. If you have great product that you're serving the guests. So it really is a partnership. I don't understand how a movement like that helps anyone because uh, even a server, you know, you're not getting a huge income. And a lot of times the servers are students who are working part time and they need whatever money they can get to really survive on. I really hope it doesn't come back that movement because the tips are a necessary part. The restaurant owners are so squeezed for profitability that it's so hard for them to increase what they pay unless you push on the cost to the consumer. And how much will a consumer bear? So it's this nasty cycle that you get caught into, but it, I don't know why that movement started in the first place. The waitresses and waiters, they earn their tips by giving a great experience. And that's why we're even contemplating, you know, because of the innovations in technology where you're going to sit at your table, you're going to pay, you're going to order directly on your phones. So we're looking at changing what we call a waiter or a waitress to really an experience maker. So you're there to create a different experience in the restaurant and then you're going to have people who are going to run food, right? Who are going to bring food back and forth. It, it is evolving. Like the whole industry is evolving.
0: It'll be fascinating to see again how it plays out over the next 12 to 18 months because I think we've seen this huge acceleration through COVID of digital adoption, partly because it's been driven by consumers, but partly it's been driven, to your point, just by these labor shortages and having to get creative and innovative.
1: Where you work too because we're a suburb play where we have some downtown but not many. I just came back from a conference in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal and it's been devastating. It's, you go down the main street, which was the main bar area in Montreal, a third of the stores are closed. And these are big bars that have been around since I, when I was a kid, I was going there. They're all now closed. It's it's been amazing. So the, the other big transformation that's happening in the restaurant industry is it's moving out into the suburbs. My kids who are still in university, you know, they used to say, oh, I'm going to go live in Toronto downtown. They aren't doing that anymore because the suburbs are now changing where they've got bars and restaurants and things to do up here, and it's close to work. I used to commute two hours each way every day. I did that for 10 years. I can't believe it now. I go down there once and I just go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this.
0: That's almost heartbreaking to hear about Montreal because I am very fond of Montreal and very familiar with that street. And I think that once people start traveling again, that's the sort of things that they, I think will come as a bit of a shock, just the impact it's had on the storefronts. Look, this has been a a great conversation. Thank you for your time, your insights, and for sharing the Wild Wings' amazing journey with us today and insights into how to build out a successful franchise network. And best of luck with the launch of the Southern Fried Spicy Wing in the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much. For more episodes and great conversations with industry leaders, head to mobiHQ.com.